As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? To be clear, I think young people in particular have every reason on earth to be terrified and angry about what's going on. And I understand that as a expression of that fear and that, that anger, protest can feel really good. And it can also get a lot of likes on Instagram and make for incredible TikTok reels. But I don't believe that there's a coherent theory of change. And in fact, I think now that it is working against an incredibly complicated undertaking. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. I am your host, Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And I have got a great one for you this week. And it's a little different, but I think you're really going to enjoy it. So on the show, we have Trevor Nielsen. You've probably never heard of Trevor, but you have heard, I'm guessing, of Extinction Rebellion. You have heard, probably, of just stop oil these of course are the aggressive activist groups that have made a name for themselves for their extremely disruptive tactics you know gluing themselves to walls throwing soup on on art masterpieces laying down on the road to snarl traffic in london they are really the tip of the spear when it comes to this kind of current era i guess you would call it of climate activism and they're increasingly divisive. Some people think they are doing God's work. Other people think they're just gone way too far and are just basically um, have lost the plot. Why am I talking about all this? Well, Trevor Nielsen, who is a climate tech entrepreneur who lives in Malibu, California, is the guy who funded them, or at least initially did. So about five years ago, he started something called the Climate Emergency Fund with a bunch of money from billionaires, Hollywood A-listers, he knows um, kind of a who's who of the wealthy and the powerful. And he, along with his co-founders, used that cash to fund the activities of Extinction Rebellion and then latterly Just Stop Oil. Now, where this gets interesting is about a week ago, Trevor sent an email to the editors of the Sunday Times saying he wanted to talk. Specifically, he wanted to talk about how the beast he had unleashed has basically gone off the rails. Um, mixing my metaphors, but you get what I mean. His argument is that basically these extreme tactics that climate activists, particularly in Europe and the UK, are are using are actually now being counterproductive. So he's breaking with his former colleagues and friends in the movement. This will be controversial. 
And so this week, I flew down to Pacific Palisades to meet Trevor at his offices of the company he runs called Waste Fuel, which is this garbage-to-fuel startup he's running, to talk about where we are in the climate crisis, what is going wrong with activism, his role, and why he's decided to come out now and talk about it. And honestly, I think he has a point. You know, the scale of the challenge is such that we need everybody kind of rowing in the same direction. And browbeating people or annoying people into agreement does not really feel like the way forward. It's not to say there's not a place for activism. There is. But I think what he is saying makes a lot of sense. And it's just interesting coming from him because he was, of course, four or five years ago, he was really funding Extinction Rebellion and a lot of the kind of really aggressive stuff they're doing, but his argument is that basically the world has moved on. We need to start bringing everybody inside the tent and all pulling in the same direction. And what the activists are doing is basically the opposite. They're just annoying people. They're making life more complicated for normal folks who just want to get to work, etc. I'll be curious what you guys think. So that's it. Here he is. Trevor Nielsen, climate tech entrepreneur, co-founder of the Climate Emergency Fund, and, which is the financial backer of Extinction Rebellion and Just Stop Oil. Uh, before I get to the conversation, just one point. Trevor did step down two years ago, which is before kind of st- Just Stop Oil started. So he has been watching from afar, and now he's talking. So here he is. Enjoy. Can we start basic? Who you are, yeah. where we are, yeah. and why we're here. Yeah, so I am a climate tech entrepreneur and somebody that has spent a lot of time also really on the philanthropic side of things, trying to help the best I can address the issue which I consider to be the existential threat to all life and to my three kids. And so I've tried to use my life as an entrepreneur and as an investor, and then also my life as a philanthropist slash activist. I'm not Bill Gates. I'm not, you know, doing that, but giving some money and then giving a lot of time to things that I think can move the needle on this. And that's taken the form of several companies, but in the case of this discussion, really has been, is focused on the Climate Emergency Fund, which I founded after getting to know one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion. Is that Roger Hallam? Roger Hallam. And then I got to know Gail Bradbrook also. There's like four of them. I spent time with her too. I spent a lot of time in London, so, but more time with Roger. And, you know, at the time, Extinction Rebellion was really just sort of forming conceptually. And in a series of lively conversations in one of which he called me a fucking capitalist, which I haven't forgot. You know, he challenged me to say, well, if you really want to help, the way you can help is to drive resources into us building this, this movement. Because at the time, and it's almost hard to remember. This is 2018. This would be 2018. Yeah. So 2018 people weren't really talking about climate. Certainly not the way they are in 2023. Sure. They're, the good point. I mean, there were people, Greta Thunberg, yeah. for example, yeah. had already started doing her really important work. And you hadn't seen the mass mobilization that we then saw beginning in 2019, basically, where 
there were millions of people around the world, primarily in Europe and in the UK, that were, you know, taking to the streets. And so anyway, the culmination of a bunch of meetings and conversations with Roger and also to somewhat with Gail led to the creation of the, the Climate Emergency Fund. And at that point, I got Eileen Getty involved, who is a dear, dear friend of mine um, and somebody I, who I just think is an unbelievably conscientious philanthropist who bears this family legacy you know, associated with fossil fuels, even though yep. the family's been out of that business for since for, the 80s, for right? decades, yeah. yeah. But just somebody I've done a lot of stuff with over the years, and and somebody I, I just really think highly of. And then after that, I got Rory Kennedy involved. Rory's a neighbor of mine in Malibu, and we teamed up to create the Malibu Foundation after the Woolsey Fire, which had happened in November of 2018. So let's pause there because I think because you start this fund. But before that, you have the Malibu fires, which were really dramatic. I read the piece you sent me in the New York Times that kind of was the coming out of what you guys were doing. Yeah. I think it was in that piece where you talk about you're on the East Coast yeah. rushing through the airport. And it I think if, if you can talk about that moment and what that did and why, how that motivated you to do something. It's funny because I used to work on AIDS when I worked with Bill Gates. And I've, I've, yeah. I've worked on genocide. I've worked on a variety of heavy things just on the philanthropic side of things. But until you personally experience sort of the terror of one of these extreme weather events, I don't think you really, you know, you really get it. So to back up, at the time I was running a company called IX. It's now called IX Net Zero, which is traded on the LSE that I'd started with Howard Buffett, who's Warren's grandson, Howard Warren Buffett. And that's a climate and sustainable investing company. So okay. I was already working on, yep. you know, on climate, but this fire broke out and initially nobody was that worried about it. We have yeah. fires in Southern California. You know, it's the kind of thing where like you sort of look and see where it is. You sort of ask your family if they're at home, like, what's the wind like? <laughs> and we live in the Santa Monica mountains okay, in a very rural area. So we have yep. animals and whatever, and we are connected to the mountains where wildfires spread the fastest. Mm. But I was at a board meeting of IX in New York, and I talked to my wife, and she was like, uh, it's okay, but you know, let's just keep an eye on it. But it was a long ways away. Yeah. But there was wind. But the wind wasn't blowing in our direction at that point. And so anyway, you know, throughout the day, I'm like at this board meeting, and I'm I'm like simultaneously trying to check my phone to see where the fire is. And of course, there's no, at least in 2018, there wasn't really a good source of data on that, which yep. is astounding if you think about it there should be like something that shows you where the fire is i mean you can get on your phone and find a burrito why can't you find a <laughs> wildfire anyway so i'm trying to like run the meeting you know and it's just kind of tricky because i'm the chairman of the board and the ceo i've got all these people checking in is everything okay yeah it seems okay until all of a sudden kind of midday it became clear that that fire was moving very fast toward malibu from kind of the Agora area where it was right. across the Santa Monica Mountains. The winds increased in speed. The embers were flying a quarter mile or half a mile. So the fire wasn't contiguous. Right, right, right. Because the winds were spinning around in circles and just insane, 70 miles an hour. Because the flames and the fires weren't contiguous, nobody had any clue what was going to happen. It was jumping straight over the firefighters 
they were mm-hmm. then racing to you know to to chase it and bottom line is the phones went down all i knew is it was getting bad i cut the board meeting short i was running through jfk trying to, to see the cnn on the monitors to see if i could find out whether the fire was near my house i couldn't reach my wife so just like it was busy signal or nothing yeah nothing, nothing. Right. because she was in a line of like four hundred thousand people trying to get out of malibu <laughs> on basically one road right pch right so thankfully she got out our house did not burn down many of our friends houses did burn down like a lot of people and, and i've covered wildfires before and you go up, and I've always been there after, where it looks like a moonscape. Yeah, and yeah it's, it's awful. And you'll see one house, pristine, and then three houses around it, just there's ash. no Yeah, there's no, it there's makes no nothing. sense. Yeah, and it's really bizarre. It's just like where the embers happen to land, and then the house is gone, and then the house right next to it, fine. Yeah, and there was a, you know, in hindsight, a lot of, consternation and analysis around the strategy of the fire department, what they did do or they didn't do. Safe to say the view was that they didn't do what they needed to do. Well over a thousand structures burned down. We were evacuated because the fire burned for six days or seven days or something. And while we were still evacuated, we knew we had to do something in part because there's a real a misperception about Malibu, which is that everybody's rich people, and it's yeah. just not true. Right? There's a lot of people that inherited houses, or they're horse people, or they have a farm, or whatever. So, my wife worked on Wall Street, but then she'd also been involved in philanthropy, and I've done stuff in philanthropy. So we decided we would create the Malibu Foundation, mm-hmm. and we did that with Rory Kennedy. Did her house burn down? It did not. Okay. It did not. She was on Point Doom. And a lot of houses on Point Doom burned down, kind of like mm-hmm. what you're talking about, but it yeah. just didn't get hers. So we right away kind of went into, let's try to help in part because we're sitting at this hotel with nothing to do other than try to help. So we yeah. raised a bunch of money and we enlisted friends right out of the gate. That was mostly for emergency relief for people that were burned out. I mean, we had, my my wife ended up volunteering to run the thing then, to run the mm. Malibu Foundation, which I think to this day she <laughs> wonders what she was signing herself up for. Yeah. But I mean, she was going around finding, I remember so clearly, she found a 90-year-old woman by herself in a car with her three dogs living in her car. There was no plan. Right. There was no one really coming to help. Right. During the fire, after the fire. And that, for me, was a real wake-up call. Mm. And you had, correct me if I'm wrong, had spent your career working in climate tech, sustainability, kind of working on this almost like, I don't want to say in theory, but like, yeah, this is important. We need to do this. Kind of in a comfortable place. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know? Let's allocate some money to this. It seems like a good idea. Do your due diligence. Ask a few experts. It's a whole different thing. When you're in the frying pan. When you're in the frying pan. And I guess after we got through that initial phase, we ended up doing a couple of fundraising concerts. Well, I saw the thing on Instagram. It was like Gerard Butler. That was at Jerry's house while the fire was still burning. One of his houses burned down in Malibu. And then that was his other house in like West Hollywood with Sean Penn. And we did that. That raised some money. And then we did the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who are all Malibu guys. Mm. They put on a concert for us. 
at the Palladium here, we raised a lot more money. Mark Benioff was super, super generous and, and supportive right. of that. Guy Osiri, if you know who he is, got really involved and helped with that as well. Anyway, the Malibu Foundation then came into being, and I had kind of done my part there, and somebody else, my wife, needed to then just kind of give the money out and try to yeah. help people. But it left me thinking, I've got to do more about mm. this because if that's my experience as a some as someone who's quite privileged and quite resilient yeah. economically and you know maybe just in you know in my overall bearing I mean imagine the impact on poor people yep people who are already disenfranchised people already who are not served well by systems and of course, that's the reality of the climate emergency: is that these these people are hit the hardest, yep. and they have the least resources. They're most distrustful, rightfully, of institutions. You know, it's just all this compounding, cascading stuff. So that was kind of what led to the creation of the climate emergency fund. And how did you meet Roger? I met Roger through Daniel Pinchbeck. Daniel Pinchbeck is a author sort of an expert on the intersection of the psychedelic realm and the ecological collapse. So he wrote a really brilliant that book. That feels like a really interesting Venn diagram. <laughs> it is. Trust me. And if you meet him, you'll really, you'll really feel that. But Daniel wrote a really powerful book called How Soon Is Now, a long time ago. Right. And he kind of has always, from time to time, will just send me notes saying, you should be doing this. And I think he had said, you should check out this organization. The other person that introduced me to Roger, or at least served as a voice in the whole thing, was Margaret Klein-Solomon, who ran an organization called the Climate Mobilization, which I had hosted fundraisers for and tried to support. The Climate Mobilization was trying, this is pre-Woolsey Fire and everything, trying to argue that World War II-style mobilization Yeah is the strategy that could capture the attention and imagination of Americans because there's so many ways you can point to it being analogous. So Margaret had introduced me also to him and was in some of those meetings. Margaret now is the executive director of the Climate Emergency Fund. I see. Now. So she's a psychologist, actually. Gotcha. So she also writes about climate grief and some other stuff like that. So I just started calling, you know, Gave a small amount of money, called people that could give larger amounts of money, started bringing some other people in, and we we got it off the ground. And then I was chair of that for, I guess, about a year and a half. And so the Climate Emergency Fund is this kind of fund, and then you dole out money yeah. to various organizations that you think are doing good work, Extinction Rebellion being one of them. Yeah, so while I was still involved... Extinction Rebellion became our biggest grantee. Got you. Focused on the UK, but there were also at the time grants given, I believe, to Extinction Rebellion as it attempted to come to the US. Right. And the theory was this issue has to be put on the agenda. And at the time, the focus was on trying to get governments to declare a climate emergency, which actually happened in the UK. Right. I think it's one of the only national governments where that's happened, and it was in large part due to this pressure from these activists. And I consider the early work of Extinction Rebellion 
to have been really important work. I, I think that those people were heroic. And that's really important for me to get across that I, yeah. I really admire these people. And I admire the current climate activists too, which I, you know we can talk more about. But to some degree, it had the intended effect. But now I think there's a need for an evolution of climate activism that goes in a different direction and it hasn't. Right. Well, so that gets us to where we are. Cause like, I think the reason I'm sitting in your office right now is that you send a message to the paper being like, Hey, I want to, I want to say something and I want to talk about, you know, cause you helped kind of birth this thing. And now you're saying, actually, I think, this isn't going the way it should, or they've kind of, they've gone off piste or, or what, what have you. So what got you to the point where you're like, I actually need to speak out now. I need to, you know, email the, you know, the newspaper and be like, let's sit down and talk. Yeah. Well, a part of it is just very simple, which is that I'm, I'm still being mentioned as being a part of this and I haven't been for a long time. <laughs> right. So there's that. But when did you quit? A couple of years ago now. Okay. I think it was 20 months ago. And did so. you step down because of your misgivings? I did. I was trying to get the Climate Emergency Fund to do what I considered to be really radical work. For example, working with hunters and fishermen and young Republicans. And specifically, I tried to create a coalition with evangelicals, young Republicans, hunters, fishermen, ranchers that we're calling the Coalition for Sustainable Jobs. And this was before Biden's IRA. IRA, right. And the idea was that by bringing in these voices, these non-traditional voices into climate activism, you form a much more powerful movement right? than if it's just people on the extreme left doing extreme things. Haranguing all of us normies about how, how we're being irresponsible. If you look at how things change, there may be a role for really loudly screaming at the beginning. But the reality is it's a lot harder to build bridges than to block bridges, if you will. Yep. A lot harder. And, you know, if you look at apartheid in South Africa, if you look at the work of Martin Luther King, if you look at the suffragette movement around the women's right to vote, If you look at really any of the places where there has been sweeping society, uh, gay marriage is another good example, where there are places where there has been sweeping societal change, that change required immensely difficult navigation of the middle. Yeah. Which is where most people reside. Yeah. Yes. The vast majority. and And it also happens to be the group that politicians pay attention to. Right. So... I was arguing that that should be a big focus of the Climate Emergency Fund. And I think... Well, because initially Extinction Rebellion, they came out of the gates and they're doing all these like very eye-catching and disruptive things that, as you say, I think got people's attention. did. Think about the stuff that they did. I mean, there were mothers breastfeeding their babies outside of 10 Downing Street, you know, crying as they breastfed their babies. Right. Who's going to disagree with that? So anyway, in that next phase, it became pretty clear to me that that work was not of interest to 
most of the people or some of the people involved in the climate emergency fund. And, th- and that work meaning you have that kind of initial phase of like, you know, kind of slapping people around the face and then being like, all right, now let's bring everybody inside the tent. Right. Let's try to engage in an immensely complicated. <laughs> yeah. And instead, what I feel like has happened now, years have gone by now. Here we are, we're in 2023. And the activists are doing more extreme things. The Just Stop Oil folks. The sure. Just Stop Oil folks in particular, but also others in other countries around Europe. They're doing more extreme things than, than Extinction Rebellion ever did. And I don't think there is a coherent theory of change. Right. I think that it is disruption for the sake of disruption. And I firmly believe in the UK, and I think that the polling and research would bear this out, they're basically ostracizing the exact people that they need to engage. And they're creating an excuse for people to stay on the sidelines. Normal working people that are trying to get to their job, get their kid dropped off at daycare. Yeah survive a brutal cost of living crisis in the UK, worried about energy prices in the wintertime, there's a certain hierarchy of, of needs that they have. And if at the same time they have a pink-haired, tattooed and pierced protester standing in front of their car so that their kid is late for their test that day at school, that does not encourage them to join the movement. It does not, no. And... I think that the record is just scratching over and over again. And they think, well, maybe if we're more extreme, then all of a sudden somebody in parliament will now care that didn't care. I I believe it's actually the opposite. So when you quit or when you stepped down as chairman, was it kind of there a straw that broke the camel's back or a stunt or a moment or, you know, what got you to that point where you're like, actually, this is kind of veering? It was before actually... I just had a sense that things were headed in this this direction. And then when all the art stuff started and the general let's create mayhem in London plan began, I knew that it was a good decision. And I don't know why funding is still flowing to those activities because I don't know any thinking person that believes that they're really actually advancing the cause. They might be a good outlet for people's emotions. Yeah. You know, at a, at a time when people are rightly very emotional. And again, to be clear, I think young people in particular have every reason on earth to be terrified and angry about what's going on. And I understand that that as a expression of that fear and that that anger, protest can feel really good and it can also get a lot of likes on Instagram and make for incredible TikTok reels. But I don't believe that there's a coherent theory of change. And in fact, I think now that it is working against an incredibly complicated undertaking. And I mean, part of the part of the issue for me is that in my day job, I work with engineers And I'm trying to change the molecules that we burn in the engines of ships around the world. Changing the molecules is immensely complicated and requires massive shifts in how we view global energy infrastructure. Yeah. And actually government, government plays a role, 
but a relatively small role. I mean, there's things that government can do to help enable it and incentivize it and such. But if the way you look at this is that we have to basically change, we have to change the electrons, the molecules, and the proteins, basically. And I don't think anyone is engaging in the world of activism in a serious conversation about how that actually occurs. Do you think it has become unserious? Or do you think it was like, okay, we're going to get people's attention and then there was not much thought after that, or there's a, I'm just trying to understand, because kind of, I think, to your point, I mean, I cover tech and climate tech all the time, like when you talk about industrial agriculture, and we've had a bunch of synthetic meat companies on this podcast, and just how hard that is, yeah. and electric electrification of everything, all that stuff you're just talking about, it's all hard, and it takes hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars to, to really yeah. do so you have that heavy lift, the heaviest lift in you know human history. In the history of the world. It is, yeah. it is the most difficult thing humanity has ever done. Right. And then you have where we are, which is very frustrating. Yeah. And the activists being like, you know, we should all be frustrated. But do you have a sense of where the disconnect has happened or if it's always been there and now it's just more obvious because the world has started to move on a bit and that you have things like the Inflation Reduction Act, which is like potentially a trillion dollars of tax cuts and subsidies for clean tech yeah. and green tech, which is kind of insane when you yeah. think about it. Yeah. So you, and then you have the UK declaring a climate emergency. Yeah. So you, you do start to see these things, but so what do you think that disconnect, has it always been there? It's just more obvious now because the world is starting to move and they're still stuck. Well, if you're an investor, and you're looking at an investment opportunity, you want to see the business plan. And then you want to see who the management team is. Yep. And you want to see what the projected returns are from the business. The equivalent in philanthropy is you want to understand the theory of change of the organization that you're seeking to, to invest in. I don't think there is a clear business plan associated with the current climate activism. I think that it is, it feels good to some people because it's very it's emotional. Like cathartic. I think it's very cathartic to the people that do it, the people, the activists themselves, and also to the funders, some of whom perhaps feel that they've done their part mm. because they have enabled people to go block the streets again in London. And I guess I really feel like that's just not enough. Because I don't think blocking the streets another thousand times in London will lead to any policy change of any kind. And I also don't think that policymakers are actually capable of guiding this transition that we need to go through if we want to have a habitable earth. So once you start unpacking that, you find yourself in a pretty stark place because you recognize the limitations of government. Just like I saw those limitations in the midst of the Woolsey fire, there were no firefighters, right? There were no police, 90-year-old women living in their cars. No one's coming to, to save us from this. And that's really true if you live in the global south. By the way, not just the global south. If you live in a, a poor neighborhood in Houston. Or in California. Or in California. Yeah. The assumption that if we just put enough pressure on them, they will come and fix this is a flawed assumption because government is not coming to fix this. Yeah. If you step back and look at that, you recognize 
that we have to engage in one of the hardest things we have ever done as humanity. And that's about building bridges with people that don't see things the way that we do. I spent a lot of time in Wyoming where we've got a place in Jackson Hole and I'm, I fly fish. And so I'm always out standing in rivers talking to people that yeah. often don't see things exactly the way that I do. And what I've found in doing that and other things like that is that there is a way to engage with people respectfully without screaming at them that I think can move things forward. And of course, you look at the greatest activists in history. This is exactly what Nelson Mandela did in South Africa, forgiving his captors, having the security detail of de Klerk who protected him against black South Africans become Mandela's security detail. This is what Tutu did. I was, I was lucky enough to do some stuff with Tutu. And so he made a huge impact on me. And, you know, this question, this uh, concept of um, Ubuntu, which is I am because you are that like, even if you're my, you were my captor previously, guess what? We're all in this together. I just think we have to start thinking about things like this and have to engage people that don't traditionally like each other. Yeah. Or we're not going to solve this. Well, to that point, how do you think your former colleagues are going to react to you coming out and saying this stuff and kind of disowning in a way their tactics and what they're funding? Well, just to be clear, I think that they should be, and I am very proud of the initial work that the organization did with yeah. Extinction Rebellion. It's just super important that I make that clear. Yep. I think my friends have already heard me talk about this and they'll understand where I'm coming from, even if they don't like it necessarily. But what I would hope is that, especially people in the UK, understand that there are people that are, have been involved in climate philanthropy, climate activism philanthropy, that recognize that where things are right now is perhaps unhelpful and that it needs to change, right. you know, and that it's not just this like unstoppable juggernaut that's going to terrorize the people of London, you know, for the next decade. And I mean, my friends in London, many of whom are very progressive people are just saying enough, this doesn't, this is not helping. And yet I think that that message has not for some reason gotten through to certain people. Because Just Stop Oil is, is that funded also primarily by the climate emergency? I believe they're the number one funder. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And similar organizations in other other uh, countries. You know, just the name, by the way. <laughs> I mean, I think about the climate emergency all day, every day. Right. We cannot just stop oil. Societies will collapse. Correct. There would be complete mayhem if that occurred. So, I mean, you just think of that alone, that fact, that this has to actually be a, a smart transition. We have to find a way to keep people's lights on, let them cook their dinners. And also that those, like everything, if you just stopped oil, it would hurt people uh, most critically in developing nations. I mean, they would, it would just be destroy countries, destroy. Not, not, not to mention the fact that coal is dramatically worse than oil. Yeah. We have, have now expansions of coal in the UK and Cumbria. They've opened mines that had previously not been touched for 30 or 40 years. I guess my point is anything that is too simplistic can easily be dismissed. And I'm not saying I have the recipe for yeah. what, <laughs> what's going to fix this. I'm just saying that defacing art 
or, you know, I guess there's a plan to disrupt Wimbledon, you know, and they've already disrupted the World Snooker Championship and they stopped the British cricket team in their bus and they... Oh, that was that the person in the snooker where they jumped in with a bunch of colors? Yeah, and, and they went to the Chelsea Flower Show and, you know, terrified the sweet old ladies that go to that. <laughs> it's just performative. It's not accomplishing anything. And I just feel like that has to be said by somebody that was involved in the, you know, the beginnings of what it became. And are you still in touch with Roger? No, not really. I I would imagine I'll hear from him (laughs) after this. You know, on Roger, like everybody, he he has lots of faults, but at least he is out there telling the truth about the issue, which is what the core demand of Extinction Rebellion at the beginning was, tell the truth. Yeah. That was it. The government needs to tell the truth. I still think that's a really beautiful construct in that if government tells the truth, that then can lead to a thoughtful conversation about what needs to occur. The truth is the activists aren't telling the truth Mm. either. (laughs) And by the way, that benefits then people on the extremes, right? Because then every time one of these stunts occurs, people who naturally oppose climate action can point to it and say, see, these people are weird people. These wackadoodles are screwing up. These people are not like you. Right. And the more they say that, and the more it resonates with just normal working people out there trying to live their lives who are concerned about climate change, by the way, all the polls show that. Why would we purposefully ostracize them by doing things that are extreme? I mean, you know, I was thinking about the Wimbledon thing. Mm. I was thinking about when I was a kid, I have two black brothers and two Asian sisters. So I come from this really unique family. And I remember my dad, when, when I was really young, when he was trying to help me understand my little brothers and what they're going to face in life, he gave me a book about Jesse Owens. I think I must have been eight years old or 10 years old or something. For our younger listeners, he's a very famous sprinter from way back. Way, way back, but famously, this is how it ties to Wimbledon. Yep. You know, he went to the Olympics in Berlin, despite being told he shouldn't go, he should boycott it. He had all sorts of people tell him <laughs> everything that he, sh- he should do. He went and he won at a time when Hitler was in charge. Aryan master race. Yeah, master blah, race. Blah, blah, blah. And Jesse Owens, who I think was from Alabama, kicked all of their asses and then basically became the first sports icon to address because this was like 1937 or 1938 or something, those Olympics, because it was, yeah, you know, and now there is a history now of, of sports icons doing that stuff. But I was thinking about Wimbledon, and I was thinking, rather than run onto the court and glue yourself to the court and disrupt the, why not talk to the players who are playing and have them, these people who've given their whole lives, by the way, to, to be there. So it's a little, just a little unfair for people to take that away from them but why not engage in a constructive conversation with them about how they can be a part of this transition that we need to go through and ask them to use their you know the podium yeah like jesse owens did right rafael nadal or somebody to be like hey this is a really big deal we should all be thinking about this right you know i've come to wimbledon i've just won or I'm not saying that I'll win, whatever, but whoever, you know, and I'd like to say that I recognize that the activists were talking about disrupting this. 
I appreciate that they didn't, but let's have a conversation about what this means to the world of sport. And oh, by the way, we couldn't play at the Australian Open because of the heat was 100. You know, I don't know. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, anyway, I, I just think disruption for the sake of disruption gives people a false sense that they are actually moving the issue forward. And unfortunately, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. Well, it sounds like you're, what you're saying is it feels almost it feels counterproductive. I absolutely believe that it's counterproductive at this point because I think that it just gives people a reason to not engage in the incredibly difficult work that has to occur, which, by the way, has to involve people. The, the incredibly difficult work that has to occur by necessity has to involve people that probably have not worked together previously and may even dislike each other. Transforming the world's energy infrastructure requires immensely complicated redesign of the world's systems. It requires engagement of institutional investors who are the ones that are going to be paying for the the new infrastructure that we need. If you're sitting as the CIO of the Stanford Endowment, the chief investment officer, you don't really want to be screamed at by somebody. And them screaming at you is not likely going to result in... Like, you know what? You're right. <laughs> it's not how it works. <laughs> right, 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 right. You know? Yeah. And I think that, I guess I'm just saying, I think this is actually going to be a lot harder than those people think it's going to be. And I think there are historical lessons that can be learned around the sort of deep and probably very painful collaboration that's going to have to occur. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on, settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. In a way, it hasn't Extinction Rebellion seems to start to be acknowledging that when they, at least Extinction Rebellion, they've said, you know, like we're going to stop. I can't remember the exact way they phrased it, but it was something along the lines of like, we're going to stop focusing so much on like the stunts that are going to disrupt your, my, whomever else is going on the tube this morning to work and rather focus on the politicians, focus more on policy change for in the kind of leveling up or changing their approach. That seems to be more in line with they did. what you're Two talking Two of about. the, I think, four founders yeah. came out, I don't remember exactly when, but 
maybe nine months ago or something and said that kind of in a funny way, they said, we quit. And then they said, well, okay, we didn't entirely yeah, quit. Just kidding. But yeah, but we've quit disrupting normal people's lives. We feel like we made the point. We now are going to try to build broad coalitions of people to influence policymakers, which I think is exactly what needs to occur. You know, I, I don't know enough about what they're doing to, yeah, yeah. to comment on it, but to me, that's a much more enlightened approach. You know, relevant to this, did you ever see the um, when Biden was trying to pass the IRA, when the protesters surrounded Joe Manchin's car in a parking oh, yes, garage? Yes, yes. Did you see yes, that? Yes. And they were banging on the hood and screaming at him. Yeah, and Joe Manchin famously was the one kind of standing in the way of it getting passed. The most powerful member of Congress, very closely aligned with fossil fuels, coal from his home state of, of West Virginia, yep. like directly financially benefits from coal. Correct. Yeah. He actually has an ownership of, of, yes, of a coal company of some description. Yeah. Yes. Well, when I saw the video of the protesters encircling his car in, in a parking garage, not letting him get out, screaming and banging on it. The first thing I thought is, I hope nobody gets shot. The second thing I thought is, if Joe Manchin had one ounce of sympathy for that argument, it is now gone. Yeah. And I'm not saying that people shouldn't hold Joe Manchin accountable or that they shouldn't engage with him aggressively. But the way you do this stuff, I think, I think matters. And we can't attack our way into partnership. We can't attack our way into the sorts of partnerships that are going to be necessary to address this. Yeah, it's kind of a little bit of... Iron fist and a velvet glove type of thing. Yeah. I mean, companies and government need to be held to account for the commitments that they've made. And, we, and if they don't meet the commitments, they need to be held accountable for that. And yeah. activists should continue to forcefully push governments to address these issues. But stopping a guy from getting to his job as a baker or as a construction worker is an illogical way to accomplish any of that. Yeah. Can we talk about you for a second sure so you mentioned you come from this really interesting yeah. mixed yeah. family so where are you from and kind of where'd you grow up yeah and how'd you grow up so i'm from seattle and my mom ran a international adoption agency whoa yeah um she is a person of faith and her faith i think and just general sense of justice and injustice led her and my dad to adopt my baby sister andrea from where uh from korea so i have two korean sisters and then two african-american brothers whose uh, father was african-american mother was korean so they were adopted from korea oh wow but they identify as, gotcha. as african-americans and i was the only white kid out of five kids <laughs> <laughs> in a suburb of seattle called olympia uh, washington south of south of seattle and so so you know i grew up with a pretty unique tri-racial yeah you know family and and and, and also a lot of uh, a lot of conversation about issues and right and wrong and my dad is a, is a retired judge oh wow and so okay. a lot you know just a lot of kitchen table conversations and then you know if you grow up in a, a multiracial family and you're the big brother you're constantly 
getting into fights, defending your brothers and sisters. And, and you were so, the big brother. Yeah, I'm the oldest, the only biological kid yep. out, of, out of five. My dad always says that, my mom always says, well, after we had you, you were so perfect that we didn't want another one. And my dad always says, after you, we had you, we knew we didn't want to have another one. <laughs> <laughs> Just left out the perfect yeah, part. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so we grew up, you know, in an interesting. And you were fighting a lot of fights. Yeah, yeah. You know, and I mean, I suppose where we were, we were in the city of Seattle, but then we were south in a place called Olympia, compared to a lot of places in the country, would be perceived as being pretty progressive. But I mean, I mean, my brothers and sisters were called some name virtually every day. Yeah. Anyway, that led me to, I think, have a, a just a general sense that I wanted to try to help out with things. And then my first job was in the Clinton White House when I was 20 years How old. How does one get just waltz into the Clinton White House at age 20? Well, I was at Washington State University, which is a great place, um, yep. but it's it's not Harvard or you know or Stanford. You know, I was playing lacrosse. I was in a fraternity, but somehow I got tuned into Bill Clinton, what what Clinton's campaign was about, and I got excited by it. I don't, and it honestly kind of snapped me out of a a pretty humdrum <laughs> college career. Kind of living the life of like a yeah, standard issued white dude and, kinda, a, and yep, a pretty much and a frat pretty much yeah <laughs> I was doing that stuff you know um, it's crazy I after he was elected I wrote a letter like you know dear the White House yeah what well, is like is it do you drop the the I mean who knows I don't know, right? but yeah. I you know yeah. I didn't and I remember it wasn't addressed to anybody I didn't know yeah. anybody right yeah. and I just said I I'm from Washington. State University, and I think that what the president is doing is really important, and I would love an internship. And to the surprise of absolutely everyone involved, especially my dad, I think, here comes a letter back from the White House to my parents' house. White House letterhead. That actually happened. Yeah. White House letterhead, White House envelope. Like everybody's like, Trevor. <laughs> and of course, I thought it was like a thanks, but yeah, no thanks yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of thing. And so, anyway, yeah, I. I I um, got an internship and I moved back to D.C. and was living in the branch of my fraternity at uh, George Washington University because I was a brother. Yep. It's like I went and I knocked on the door and I was (laughs) like, hey, can I live here for close to free? They actually gave me a a room in the basement, which was adjacent to the party room. Oh, cool. So you got a a lot of sleep. Yeah, it was like a broom closet basically. So, So anyway, fast forward, I, you know, worked hard there and then I got to be on the advanced team which travels around and sets stuff up which was pretty exciting because it meant that I then got to travel all over the world. So the advanced team is like you go out there and make sure everything should be the way it should yeah, for when like, the president arrives. Yeah, you're seating and buses. And yep. Not exactly foreign policy but really cool and I took on sort of more responsibilities. I was never a high level person at the White House by any means. So then after a few years of that, which was really exciting, I think it was my dad actually that said to me, hey, you know, you don't really have a career. Like, like you can't do this forever. There are people that do that for a yeah, long yeah, time. For but, sure. But, you know, it's not. So I started then going in this philanthropic direction and worked for a very short time in the Seattle Public Schools, actually kind of parlaying my political experience, which was minimal, but and then over time, I got hired by Bill Gates, which was a, a pretty exciting evolution. To do what? Um, I was his director of government relations 
and public affairs. And then I ended up doing grant making that had a UN or governmental component. I see. So anything that required advocacy strategy. Gavi was one of the things I worked on. Iavi was one of the things I worked on, which is the AIDS one. Uh, Bono's entire thing I helped start from the start. So that was really what, formative Red. for me. Um, the predecessor to Red, which was called Data, mm. Debt Aid Trade Africa, that then became the one campaign. Red then augmented the one campaign. I actually had less to do with Red because it came later. But that experience with Bono actually also really crystallized for me the importance of working with people that don't normally agree with you because yeah. we brought, Bono brought, I helped, brought evangelical Christians into the AIDS issue, which changed the trajectory of that forever. I'm sure there's an analogy to be drawn with our current moment. But when you talk about, and this is me being ignorant, but like, how did he bring evangelicals along? So... This is super relevant, actually, yeah. to this conversation. So AIDS was perceived as a gay person's disease. Gay cancer back in the yes. day. Yes, and it was – and there were people on the right wing and the, the, the Christian right wing that literally believed that it was God's punishment for people that were behaving in a way that they perceived as being sinful. And Bono and others, but he deserves enormous credit for this, were able to – shift that conversation in part by talking about AIDS orphans. So right. at the time, it's almost hard to remember, but there were there was a time where there was close to 50 million people that had AIDS globally, yeah. Yeah. all over the world, including yeah. the US. And in Africa, it was becoming a women's disease uh, because there's a anatomical reality associated with HIV that makes it easier for women to be infected than than um, than for men, and as a result, there was just this horrific AIDS orphan problem where right. babies sometimes they were born with HIV, sometimes they were born without it, but their mothers were dying, they were orphaned, and in its simplest form, the thing that Bono did was articulate to christians to evangelicals using the bible in fact matthew 25 was the section of the bible that he always talked mm. about which is the part of the bible that talks about what you have done to the least of these you have done unto me so there's right. a, there's a very powerful place in the bible if you haven't read the bible much uh, matthew 25 is a good place to <laughs> to check in because right. it is you know it is basically like how you treat the most vulnerable people on this planet God wants to know how you treat those people and the people that treat them well are going to heaven and the people that don't treat them well are going to hell. That, that would be the easy summary of Matthew yeah. 25. And I think that because so many women were being infected, including a lot of Christian women in a lot of these African countries, yeah. so many children were being orphaned that he was able to appeal to that group in a new way. And that forever changed the future of the United States government's involvement in global health issues. How? Because he got George W. Bush on board. He got Jesse Helms, other very conservative members of the American Congress on board. Which released funding. Which and... released historic levels right. of funding that continue to today. So I saw a statistic recently that the government entity that is one of the mechanisms that was created is called PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, 
they put out a report recently saying that that has saved 20 million lives. Right. That's the U.S. taxpayer saving 20 million lives. And that is due to Bono's work. Bobby Shriver was super involved in that and an architect of it in many ways. And it shows you what can happen when you bring Mm. together a unique coalition of people. Because now it was AIDS activists from New York and from the, the cities, but it was also pastors and Christian evangelicals. I mean, they had like, you know, mega church pastors. Right. And we need something similar on climate. We, we have to build bridges. If we don't build this big coalition, we're not going to have the sort of transition that we need to Who's have. Who's our Bono? I don't think it's Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, he's been out to the UN and giving speeches, but it doesn't... I mean, because I think to your point, if, if the idea is we have to do this historic in the scale of humanity lift and change and transformation around the world, obviously that's not one person, but you've got to start somewhere. But I'm just trying to th- think of any figures that kind of immediately jump to mind, and I don't have any. And Maybe that's part of the problem. I don't know the answer to that. It's a really tough question. I know it's going to need to be a lot of different people. And I think that there will be surprising people that emerge. I mean, if you think about Greta, I don't think anybody would have guessed necessarily that she would have evolved in the way that she did. And I don't know the answer, but I do know that if you look at history, you find that metaphorically laying down arms Mm. and actually, or literally in some cases in history, let's not forget that. Mandela at one point advocated for violent, you know, revolution because he thought it was the only his only choice. Laying down arms and engaging with people that we have thought to be our enemies, or at least that we just don't like, or you know, that we disagree with, is going to be a really big part of this. And that's really hard for sure. And then, so just to kind of circle back, just to finish that, close off the thread of of you. So you were working at Gates. Yeah. So I started a company after I left the Gates orbit. I was working both for the foundation, also for his family office. And the company was called Global Philanthropy. And it was meant to be sort of a McKinsey of philanthropy. Right. In fact, Bill Gates Sr., younger Bill's dad, had a funny line about that, which was when I told him I was starting the company and I was, you know, telling him how excited I was, he said, well, why didn't you call it Intergalactic Philanthropy Group, Trevor? <laughs> Seems as if you're ambitious. <laughs> Just giving me shit, basically. Great guy, Bill Gates Sr. But um, I worked with a whole bunch of different people in that context. And this is also where like online and people are saying that I'm a, uh, somehow a part of George Soros's. Oh, are you been drawn into the whole yeah. anti-George Soros yeah, which thing? Couldn't be farther from the truth, right. but I think they're conflating and by the way, I have nothing but respect for George Soros. I don't have any, but it's just an odd thing you get sucked into, at least on. Do you know him or have the. I mean, I've met him a couple of times, but right. no, I have no association yeah, yeah. with him at all. Right. Anyway, I started that company. I sold that company, then got into the sustainable investing side of things, which is a pretty easy evolution from philanthropic investing. Yeah. That was what's now called IX Net Zero. It used to be called IX Investments, and that's what IPO'd in, in London a few years ago then waste fuel after that. So waste fuel takes uh, is building biorefineries to take garbage and turn it into low carbon fuels. For shipping. For shipping, although they could be used for other things. But the core premise is that we have vast amounts of waste in the world and it's only growing. And that yep. with, within that waste is very valuable feedstock is what we call it. And we can use it very effectively to power the world's ships. 
which consume vast amounts of bunker fuel, which is one of the most polluting forms of fuel. And that's not just carbon dioxide. It's also all these nasty particulates. It's the reason yeah. why if you're ever near a port, there's always a haze. It's because those ships run 24 hours a day. And the premise is that we should be using, instead of letting garbage, which produces methane. So methane is very bad, very, very bad, depending on how you measure it 60 or 70 times worse than carbon dioxide in the early years that we can capture that waste and turn it into fuel. And, and then the 90% of consumer products that move on a ship and it literally is 90% can be decarbonized if you're using waste generated fuel. Right. So that's the premise of, of waste fuel. And sounds super easy. <laughs> it was a lot easier being an, a, an investor. Being an investor is pretty easy, by the way. Yeah. You're up in the Bay area. I mean, all these people think that they're geniuses, you know, sure. You got to do it right. But comparatively the complexity of actually building a business like this and working with landfills around the world. And it, it's, it's, it's a lot more complicated. Yeah. And I'm curious because I mean, through that history, I'm sure, and your neighbors, you know, John Penn and yeah. Gerard Butler and all these yeah. people, what is your sense of, because, you know, I think about Bill Gates and he's obviously done huge amounts for global health yeah. and that's kind of really his, not the only thing, but kind of his thing. In terms of climate and its kind of uh, prioritization or the way people think about this stuff, the mega wealthy and influential people in the world, what is your sense of where it sits right now? We're not in a good place, that's for sure. Mm. I mean, I think it's highly unrealistic that the world meets this 1.5 degrees Celsius yeah. you know, goal around global heating. And we're going to be moving into a world and our kids are going to be living in a world that is very hot and very chaotic and where extreme weather is virtually a daily experience for them. It's going to be a dangerous world. There's going to be very large amounts of, of water-focused conflict, food-focused conflict, mass migration, et cetera, et cetera. That's just where we're heading. And I think the question now is what of this beautiful world can we preserve? You know, like what, what, what can we hold on to? And I think unfortunately wealthy and influential people for the most part are not engaged in this issue. And I think they actually will be at some point because I think the situation is going to be so bad that they have no choice but to be. Well, it's funny you say that because, and I've, I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but four years ago was when we had like the orange day. Yeah. And this is something that's seared in my brain. I was taking my then three-year-old to school. Yeah. And the sky was like this color that I had, no one yep. had ever seen before. And my three-year-old was like, Dad, why are we going to school when it's nighttime? And you're kind of like. That's horrible. Yeah. And then like later that day, they call back. So you have to come pick up your kids because the air is too toxic. They yeah. can't breathe. You have to go and keep them inside. You have ash falling on your head. And I can't tell you the number of people who cite that day in the Bay Area as the day that they were like, all right, I have to do something different with my time. Was it just one day, though, or was it, it was like several an extended days, period? But there was one, one day, that was, really day that was just like everybody yeah. remembers. Yeah, right, right. But it was like a period of like a month when it was very bad. I do feel like, to your, exactly what you're saying, it kind of just everybody has to, to your Wolseley Fire point, 
until it hits you in some way, shape, or form. People are like, it's over there, it's kind of more distant. And then when it hits you in a visceral way, that's when people wake up. So it does feel like there's, sadly, if you're talking about really mobilizing people in power to create new systems for billions of people, there's going to be after a lot of be of really terrible things have to happen. I gave a speech about this where I talked about you have to look at the monster. The first reaction, if there, if, if for a lot of people, if there, if there's a really scary monster, is I just want to pretend like it's not there. Yep. But if you make a decision in your life, and this is, I think, a part of where that extinction rebellion construct of tell the truth. You know, if you tell the truth to yourself and to your kids, which is very difficult on this. Uh, yeah, I have four and six year old. I haven't gone there yet. Yep. If you tell the truth, and then if you act like the the truth is real, because any yeah. responsible person would, you kind of go into this new place and there's not really any way to go, to go back from it. So that means different things to different people. And I think it may, in part that depends upon what your resources are and what privilege you have in life yeah. to be able to, to do these things. Because if you're working a nine to five job that you're just desperate to not get fired from and you're the car you have barely runs you know, you're not going to go buy a EV. Nope. And actually, that's not the problem anyway. I mean, the, the, the problem is not this kind of retail consumer behavior. Those are all things that we can do to improve the world a little and make ourselves feel better. But we have to change our energy systems. And it really is agriculture, fuel, and electricity it's electrons, molecules, and protein yep. that have to be changed. And that's immensely difficult. One of the best examples, I think, is of this is, the, is recycling, which, I mean, recycling is practically a religion to some people. 100%, yes. It is also largely bullshit. Yep. The fraction of municipal waste that actually ends up being recycled globally is tiny it's probably less than one percent well this is like i saw john oliver did a big thing on this and i was one of those people like gotta recycle we've got the different bins and all that stuff and like we feel so great because we live in northern california this is what everybody does but then you don't realize that like it all just gets buried or incinerated it often goes in the exact same pile as everything else there's there's machines called a murf that separates it another example plastic straws so, you know, you had just up and down the coasts, basically, this movement. The against, anti-straw brigade. I mean, the anti-straw brigade. I mean, they largely irrelevant, performative. This is about changing systems. And this is, goes back to the UK, actually, I think, in a really interesting way, which is that the UK is where the Industrial Revolution started. And all of the inventions, by the way, the steam engine, all these things all occurred actually around the same sort of general period in the UK. And in that case, it was largely coal with horrible social consequences, of course, you know, that drove that revolution. And that unlocked a period of prosperity in the history of the world that was, that had never happened before. And, And it, and it was fossil fuels that unlocked that until relatively recently, nobody involved in those industries knew they were doing anything wrong. Yeah, Everybody talks about how ExxonMobil had climate science going back to 
to the eighties, but I, I mean the period way before that, right? Yeah, so yeah. for hundreds of 40s, years, fifties, sixties, eighteen hundreds. Yeah. So for hundreds of years, yeah. you know, people were able to turn their lights on and cook things and be warm because of fossil fuels. And so the transition to a new version of that is going to require an immense amount of work. And, and I think that London is still at the center of this in a lot of ways. And I think it will be too. There, there's a lot more focus on climate issues in the UK than, yeah. than in the US, period. People can criticize everybody for not doing enough and all of that. But the truth is the country has taken it much more seriously than the US. I mean, virtually nothing is happening at the federal level in the US. You have certain states that have done a lot, actually. You know, I think the state of California is a good example of that. The Inflation Reduction Act feels like that's like a significant Huge. thing. Huge. And it's incentivizing all these new businesses. Yeah. And, it, and, it, it's, and it's also um, de-risking capital that might otherwise not be coming into the system. It's the reason why climate tech and AI are like the only two segments right, yep. of tech, technology that are still growing and doing I mean, well. I mean, I guess AI is probably at a much higher level. Much than, higher, but yeah. Climate tech, but you would know better than I do, but I think climate tech VC investing has slowed, but like nowhere near as It hasn't as, dropped off the cliff. It's right. kind of plateaued and everything else has dropped off the cliff, right. except AI. Right, right. So there is plenty of room to be hopeful on this stuff. I, I just think that it's important to also be realistic about how change occurs and how it doesn't occur. Are you ready for the slings and arrows once this goes up? Well, I would hope that people who are really committed to this current form of activism would just take it as a opinion offered in humility in that I am not saying I know what the answer is. I just know this is not the answer. This is not. Yeah, right. But going back to that business, the thing of this as like an investable business, did you go into it initially being like, this business plan probably sucks, but it's better than nothing. So I'm going to fund it. No. In fact, you mean Extinction Rebellion? Yeah. No. In fact, I remember looking at that and having those conversations and saying, this is a wild ass idea, <laughs> but it's the sort of moonshot to go, to, you know, to like to use tech terms. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You probably hear every yeah. day. It's, this is a moonshot idea that you can, with a relatively small amount of money, I mean, that's the other core part of this, is yeah. that these are not... 10x results. Yeah, you could get 10x results. You can get, you know, this huge multiple on your investment. So that's how... And actually, I think that that, that bore itself out. Yeah. You know, Gates often says that, or at least he used to often say that his investment in Bono and his organization was the most leveraged investment that he had ever made because Bono only needed like five or $10 million or something and right. then provoked hundreds of billions of dollars of government investment into these global health programs. And so I think we sort of viewed it as something similar, but I don't think there is a clear business plan or investment thesis for the current what we're currently seeing in, in the UK and in a lot of European countries around climate activism. And certainly not in America. Well, you know, I don't think there has been as much of this stuff in the US. I just don't think that there's even enough people to go do it. I mean, they've done things like blocked cars going to the White House correspondence yeah. dinner. Yeah, yeah. To be blunt, I think that that's largely irrelevant. Yeah, I think that who cares? I think that people just go find a way around the, <laughs> you know, I don't think they go. Yeah. Sorry, I missed my I missed the appetizer, but I'm here now. Yeah, yeah, maybe some people are late. And so I just think it's time for a new, deeper, more serious conversation about how we embark on 
this transition. And just circling back to where we started, you've obviously been thinking about this for a while. Yeah. You quit almost two years ago. What brought you to this point where you're like, I'm going to throw this grenade in amongst people that are my friends and still doing it? You know, the thing that first drew me toward that early work of Extinction Rebellion was this notion that if you tell the truth, it can evolve the issue. And so I yeah. guess I just considered this this to be a part of telling the truth, that I don't think it's currently working and that I think it needs to change. And I, I hope that the people who are involved understand that I admire their intentions. You know, I guess that's an important point. I, I admire where they're coming from. I just think the tactics are at this point harming the cause. Yeah. I hope I made clear. I don't think I have all the answers here. No, no. I mean, I don't, it's, that's this, to me, it feels, it's not something that anybody can have no. the answers to. You know, I've, I have really been reading as much as I can lately. And actually I've been asking chat GPT also to read for me, trying to summarize the consistent themes among successful movements around the engagement of people mm -hmm. that otherwise would see a movement as being extreme. And the, there are definitely commonalities. The commonality is that they're often, the, uh, that a voice early on is often seen as being kind of alone and not making any sense. And then there's an engagement of some kind with people in the middle that resonates. Yeah. And I feel like it's that, that Venn diagram of kind of events, dear boy events, something that you see in a real way that affects you in a real visceral way combined with the other Venn diagram, you know, the circle in the Venn diagram yep. of like, how does this affect me on the like bottom line, my job, yep. my well-being, my ability to provide for my family. When you're talking about like coal country, maybe wind tur turbines aren't a bad thing because you can help build them and maintain them or do or fastest growing job in America yeah. is solar installer, right? Wind turbine installer is not far behind it. It might yeah. even have been the second or third. Yeah. I mean, I've been watching, in fact, this morning where the closing arguments, this trial taking place in Montana where 16 kids are yep. suing the state because there is a provision in the Montana constitution that just unequivocally says that one of the primary duties of the state is to provide for the health of the, of its citizens and to protect the environment. Yep. It's written in the constitution. So you've 16 kids, hunters, fishermen. I mean, these are not bleeding heart liberals. They're not funded by George Soros. <laughs> no, they don't even know who George Soros <laughs> is. And they've grown up in these wildfires and, and in coal country, very compelling testimony from these kids. And, and then the state of Montana is defending against it because the attorney general and governor are, you know, supporters of the coal industry. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens there because if the arguments of the plaintiffs are persuasive, their their demand is not for any financial damages. It's that then the state put in place a plan to wean itself off mm. of coal primarily. Yep. Something to really watch. Brave there's kids. tons of land and there's they don't need that much power. It's like there's like two million people. I don't know how many people are in Montana, but it's not much. There was the most absurd testimony. I mean, it would it it was comedic. Um, but I think well, this is actually gets this is right at the heart of what you're talking about, though, because it's like you could green Montana in probably three to five years. You build a couple big wind farms or solar 
arrays and you're good. And there's a huge amount of money to be made doing it. Correct. And and the smart energy companies are going in this direction really fast. I mean, Texas is the leading yep. state adopter of renewables right now. But the the testimony that I just found hilarious and pathetic was well, sorry, it wasn't testimony, it was an argument from the state of Montana's lawyer that was saying ranchers couldn't ranch anymore because of wind turbines. And this expert who he was trying to cross-examine a plaintiff's expert, I guess. And the, the, the guy's going, what are you talking about? The cows just walk around the pole. And the government lawyer is saying, well, no, it, you know, it causes harm to the cows. It's just, you just get into these absolutely absurd yeah. things. Another one is that, you know, you have people all of a sudden caring about the handful of birds, birds. that get whacked by a wind turbine. People that, that normally are shooting birds <laughs> couldn't care less about birds. I was going to shoot that one. <laughs> right, exactly. So we just have to get past some of that silliness, you know. And yeah. the Mountain West actually is a really important place for this stuff because you also have very interesting stuff happening in nuclear energy in places like Wyoming Gates is have you followed that Mm -mm. it's called uh Project Bison it is going to be a small wait small modular reactors these are small modular so Gates has a deal in um Wyoming I'm forgetting the name of it now where they're going to be doing this there and if it works which people seem to think that that small scale huge game changer and it's going to make coal just look like a joke there's going to be absolutely no reason for anybody to use coal so so you're my last question, I promise. Optimist, pessimist, both at the same time? I'm a dad. And as a dad, I have to be an optimist. Yep. And I think that it's possible to be optimistic while also really rigorously analyzing all the barriers <laughs> to that optimism, you know. But I don't I think if you're a if you're a mom or you're a dad, or even if you just have kids in your life that you love, or if you just care about other people's kids, I don't think you have much of a choice, but to get up every day and try to, you know, look at the truth and then say, well, what can I do in my own way to try to contribute to that? Yeah. You know, and I hope that two years from now, three years from now, we're having a very different conversation about this, which is about how best to be implementing the plan that everybody agrees that we need yeah. to implement. Um, there'll still be plenty of fights. <laughs> there'll be people that want to go slower or want to go faster. Or, But right now, we don't even have a plan. There, there's no plan anywhere for this. Yeah. And so we've got to get out of that, that dynamic because otherwise, the longer we wait, the higher the cost is going to be that we have to pay. Yeah. Well, I'm sure this is going to instigate its own little fight, but hopefully it's in in the interest of yeah i hope it contributes right to that and um yeah i hope my friends that are involved in that world of things aren't too upset with me and understand that it's just being offered because i hope it's helpful and that is all the time we have i want to thank trevor for taking the time i want to thank you all for listening uh i'm curious what you guys think of where we are with the climate crisis with activism whether you think it's actually still moving the needle or it does indeed need to kind of change the approach or do you think we need to do all of it Uh, maybe that's the answer anyhow i think it's a fascinating topic um very germane to all of us so i hope you guys enjoyed that and we'll talk to you next week see ya bye bye
VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.